Hi, my name is Kyle Nordforce. I'm a commercial airline pilot, and I'm also the drone team uh, coordinator for Weber County Search and Rescue. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about how drones are implemented in the search and rescue world and how we're using them to save lives. Hi, everyone. I'm Greg from Pilot Institute. We train drone pilots all over the country. Hi, my name is Haya from Drone Excel, where we cover all the drone news on our website. Welcome to the latest episode of the Pixel Drone Show, our weekly podcast where we talk to industry professionals about what they do in the UAS space. From professionals who use drone to fly inspection missions to public safety users or even drone light shows, you will learn on the Pixel Drone Show that drones are much more than just toys. Right, it's another Tuesday and it's another show. What's going on in your life, Haya? Uh, nothing much. Keeping up with all the drone news, and uh, as you uh, uh, showed in your video this morning, there's a lot going on every single week. There's there's more news than uh, you can cover in your videos and that I can write about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on. I'm I'm getting ready to go on vacation, so we've been recording like crazy. Uh, Ethan's hard drives are smoking and um, so that they have stuff to publish when I'm gone so it doesn't look like I'm gone but people will know now because they're listening to this yeah exactly yeah they might see a, a different person doing the news video who knows oh possibly possibly, possibly. actually I wonder I wonder when this is going to go live in relationship to that so we'll see <laughs> oh yeah maybe this is after the fact well anyway then people know uh, then people will be able to figure out what happens you have to so. work on your French accent though I'm a oui, bien, bien sûr. Hein? <laughs> I can try. <laughs> yep. So, uh, so who's our guest today? What? Uh, who are we talking to? Uh, Kyle Norforce. He's from Utah, and he's very much involved in search and rescue with drones. And I've known him for quite some time. Uh, he shares quite a bit of social media, and I think having somebody like him on the show with a lot of hands-on experience and like real uh, life stories about how drones are being used for good and how we can use them to locate people and uh, yeah, help save lives. I think it's uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I was actually listening to a Clubhouse. Yeah, Clubhouse uh, with. Um with our friend Adrian Doko every Saturday. And uh, yeah. he had a guest from Drone Responders, the uh, uh, a guy who created Drone Responder. I don't know why his name is not, <laughs> I'm having a brain fart right now. I know him because <laughs> okay. we talk to him all the time. I'm sorry. We had him on the show, I think. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, that's Charles. So Charles, and then there's oh. another gentleman, and I don't know why I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, uh, and he was talking about how how much you know they, they see stories about people using drones for goods, especially yeah. in the search and rescue world. So it's uh, it's life changing. So I'm I'm excited to talk to him and and see what happens. So well, should we uh, should we bring him on? Yeah, sure. Let's uh, let's get started. Kyle, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Um, first question for you is, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started with drones? Like what, where, when, what models, all that good stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I've always been um, a lover of aviation. In fact, I, I currently work as uh, a captain for one of the legacy carriers here in the United States. Uh, I'm a captain on an Airbus, an A320 and A321, uh, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, photography has always been a passion of mine as well. So the leap to drones, once the, uh, the cameras uh, on the drones were such that they were um, conducive to, to uh, taking photography, uh, it, it became a, a no-brainer. And as already as a 61-rated pilot, getting my um, drone licenses was, was a piece of cake. So I yeah. got into drones probably back in 2016 uh, with the Mavic. Uh, the the original Mavic and yeah. haven't looked back. Awesome. So you've been uh, you've been around for a while with uh, with drones. That's good. For a little bit, yeah. So how did you end up uh, getting involved with search and rescue? Well, um, I did a webinar with uh, DJI uh, late last year, during which I, I told the story. Our local mayor here in the city that I live in was uh, serving in the military in Iraq, and or I'm sorry, in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, was uh, did not come home. Uh, and as a service project uh, here in my hometown, we decided to hang the world's largest free hanging American flag in one of our local canyons. And we needed oh, wow. to have uh, a drone fly the line from one side of the canyon to the other. Um, so that was me. I, I did that, and I was able to uh, meet the commander for the search and rescue team locally as our search and rescue team riggers were the ones that were rigging this 
500 pound flag in the canyon. So talking to the search and rescue commander, he was impressed with what the drone was able to do. And he thought, man, we need to implement this in our search and rescue uh, team. And um, I filled out an application and they brought me on as the uh, drone team coordinator. So I started the team from scratch and uh, we've been able to develop it into uh, something that I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we're in the process of doing our best to save as many lives as possible. And is, is this for uh, Weber County Search and Rescue? Yep, Weber County Search and Rescue. Weber. We are just north. Yep, Weber County, uh, Weber County. We're just north of Salt Lake City, about 45 minutes north. Ogden yeah, is yeah. our biggest city for those of the, uh, that are familiar with Utah. Yeah. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about um, what it took to develop a drone program? Because I can imagine, especially a couple of years ago, there weren't many examples, I guess, that you could kind of learn from. So how did you guys go about that? No, that's true. And and most uh, law enforcement agencies and fire departments and most agencies in public safety just kind of add the drone to it and see what they can do. Um With my 22 years of um, aviation background, I decided that what I needed to do was to implement this as an aviation asset, uh, as a program all into itself. Our Mm -hmm. search and rescue team is a little bit different than most teams in that we have specialty teams. So we're not a jack of all uh, trades team. We don't have all of our team members, experts in, in everything. We actually have expert riggers. We have expert divers. We have a motorcycle team, a snowmobile, a snow, oh, wow. snowmobile team. Um, we, so we, our guys are very specialized, highly specialized. And um, so I was going, I had the privilege to be able to start this from the grounds as an aviation asset. And I started it from an FAA aviation perspective rather than just trying to toss a, a toy up in the air to see what it can see. So um, I had that uh, background and that's the perspective that I took and it has ended up paying uh, dividends in the long run. So what's the what's the day-to-day uh, as far as the operation goes? Um, are you guys busy pretty much year long? I would guess, especially in the winter and the summer is when you probably have the most customers per se. Uh, what, what does that look like on a regular basis? Yes. Um, so there are, uh, d- at different times of the year, different teams get utilized more often. For example, in the wintertime, of course, our snowmobile team gets utilized a lot more than in the summertime. So just last night, as an example, we had a, a call out. We had a mountain biker that was up on top of a uh, mountain peak that is uh, relatively famous in the uh, film world it's actually the the mountain peak that was modeled for paramount pictures for their original ah. logo back oh, wow. in the day he was uh, stuck up on top of that mountain uh, and stuck in the snow so our motorcycle team was called out so it, it's uh, we're just a big group of uh, standby or uh, volunteers continuously mm-hmm. on standby 24 7 when a call out comes if uh, we're available and able to make it we make it um, my drone team for example we're we're on standby year round and we get uh, de- uh, deployed on just about every single call out. Okay. So you have a specific drone team that goes along with a specialized team on that, that does whatever they do, right? Correct. So the uh, drone team is typically, if we don't have good coordinates or, or know exactly where the patient is, the drone team will show up on scene. We're usually one of the first ones there. We'll deploy the drone into the uh, relative area or the area in which we think that he is. If we have a cell phone ping uh, in the mountains uh, without the be, uh, able to be able to triangulate those cell phone pings, a lot of times those cell phone pings are wildly inaccurate. So we toss the drone up to be able to get eyes on our patient. Even if we know where the patient is uh, and are relatively certain of where he is and he's given us, uh, if we have communication with him, we'll still toss the drone up to be able to give our incident command a, a bird's eye view of what's going on. So then that way our ground team can, uh, can have good solid coordinates and also be abreast of what the uh, the situation is around and the conditions are around our patient. Yep. Can you tell us a little, because it sounds like uh, when you say that the drone team is pretty much called up on in in almost every situation, how many drone pilots do you guys have? How many drones? What kind of models do you fly? Can you tell us a little bit about how you guys are organized? Yeah, you bet. So uh, as of right now, we have three full-time dedicated pilots that are just pilots on the drone team where they, we were experts on just on the drone team. We're about ready to bring on on a fourth, but what I've done uh, with the other teams 
is that, um, for example, if we have a snowmobile call out and it, it's good uh, eight miles downrange, uh, mm-hmm. I have pulled individuals from the other teams and trained them, taught them the 107. They got their license and we'll put like a Mavic 2 Enterprise Advanced in their backpack. So if they're downrange and they need, they see a cliff face or if they see something that's worth investigating, they can pull the drone out of their backpack and toss it up. So as far as total pilots go, we have uh, 13 total pilots, mm-hmm. uh, three of which are solely dedicated to the uh, drone team. Uh, one of which is uh, another uh, manned aircraft pilot like myself. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my wife is actually uh, a full-time pilot on the on the drone team as well. Uh, the fourth pilot that we're bringing on is actually one of our county attorneys. Uh, he's uh, got his 107 and, and uh, he's just passionate about it. So we're going to be bringing him on as well. So what do you find uh, is one of the biggest assets of using the drone in a situation that you didn't have before 2016? What's, what's the biggest attribute? Well, so our very first rescue happened. Uh, to answer your question, I'll, I'll tell you a story of our very first rescue. Uh, I mentioned the cell phone pings prior. Cell phone pings are great. They'll get us at least in the ballpark or you know relatively close. But yep. when you're dealing in, in the Rocky Mountains like we are here in Utah, um, if you're even 200 meters off, that could be from one cliff face to the other cliff yeah. face, which could be hours to get from one to the other. And that's yeah. what happened on our very first uh, rescue with the drone where we, where we deployed the drone. And this was in spring of uh, 2018. So we had the cell phone ping. It was up on uh, in an area that we call Waterfall Canyon. And we deployed our ground teams up into the area of the, uh, the cell phone ping. I deployed as well to get up on, up on top to see us, uh, what I could see with uh, a thermal imager. Of course, it was the Mavic 2 Enterprise Dual at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, we couldn't see anything up there at all. So um, Incident Command sent me to the next canyon to the south and the next ridge to the south to see uh, if there was anything down there. And sure enough, in the process of searching the next canyon to the south, I saw a, a, a random light in the next canyon to the south. So almost oh, two wow. canyons to the south. I went to go investigate, and sure enough, there were our three lost individuals. Um, they had although they were in short sleeve shirts and shorts and tennis shoes, uh, standing in uh, in an area where there was still some snow left on the mountain. The temperatures had dropped down to th- uh, 31 degrees Fahrenheit or just uh, minus one degree C, and um, it, they they were cold. They were very cold. Yep. So with that, I was able to get their coordinates, their latitudes and longitude, and we were able to radio that into our ground teams. After a quick battery swap, I tossed the drone back up, and with the spotlight, I hovered the drone right above the patients and show, uh-huh. uh, put the spotlight in the direction of our climb team. And so they were actually able to see exactly where they needed to go. Uh, out the, At that time, we didn't have uh, – mapping software or uh, software to be able to deliver the exact lat longs to their cell phones. So that's the way we did it back then. And so um, that was the the big thing that we're able to do with the drones is if we're, we're able to confirm and find our patients yeah. long before our ground teams even leave the parking lot. And what that does is that on that particular rescue in particular, for example, if we um, – didn't use the drone or didn't have the drone, uh, it, it is, was assumed by the professionals and the, param- the EMTs that were on the scene um, that as they arrived to those patients, if we were just even a few hours later, they probably would not have made it off the mountain. So yep. um, it's time-saving and it's life-saving. Yeah. Can you, uh, for, amazing. for the people that aren't familiar with Beaver County, uh, can you describe to us the, the, the area, the lay of the lands, the, the weather conditions, like the kind of challenges that you deal with when, you, when you're looking for missing people? Well, given that we're uh, in northern Utah, uh, nestled mm-hmm. right up against the Rocky Mountains, we have three different ski resorts, one of which is where they had the Winter Olympics in 2002. Ah. So we have very steep terrain. We have very high terrain. 
we have a, a couple lakes. We have mountain rivers and streams. We have uh, these streams are such that we have a lot of uh, uh, water rafting and kayaking that go down them. Uh, so the, the city itself, the main our main city, is nestled right up next to the mountains. And there's about a 7,000-foot uh, scale difference from the valley floor to the peak of the mountain. Um, it's a very beautiful, pretty area. I'm not originally from this area, but uh, once I moved up here, I fell in love with it, and I, I don't ever want to leave. So it's a, a vast area up into the mountains. We also have a lot of um, snowmobiling terrain where it will be just flat rolling hills up and and we're talking about 7,000 feet above ground level. I'm sorry, above sea level uh, that just go on for miles and miles and miles. As far as the exact square footage or how big the county is, I don't have that number right off the top yeah. of my head, but it's a pretty good sized county. But it's a pretty challenging yeah. environment. It sounds like if you if you have to look for people and it gets dark or it's winter and yeah. So we have, uh, of course, we get, uh, since we have the ski resorts, we get a lot of snow and uh, we do have all four seasons. And today it's going to, should be hitting 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So <laughs> it, it, we get, we get all four uh, seasons and all the extremes. Yeah. I live in Prescott, Arizona, a little, far, a little south of you. And uh, we, we get the same thing in the mountains and get all four seasons, but it can get pretty treacherous in the winter. So yeah. I love Prescott. It's great down there. Oh, awesome. Uh, so it sounds like this has been a really successful program. Do you have any statistics about how many rescues you've been able to do? And and maybe not even stats, but give us an idea of how much of an impact the drones have made on the operation as far as saving lives or saving even your people from, you know, when, when they do their job. So there's, it's hard to uh, put into numbers a metric by which how successful the drone program is. I think the yeah. best way to be able to find that out is one by talking to our patients, uh, the ones particularly the ones that were found by, uh, via the drone, and then also by by our ground teams. Our ground personnel, I think, uh, our uh, climb team uh, coordinator. His name is Eli. He's actually become a very big proponent of the drone for a couple of different reasons. One, it saves him, his team time from actually searching on the mountain, that they don't have to yeah. go up the trails and start pounding around trying to find these lost individuals, that they're able to actually go directly to the patient and do what they do best, and that is triage and extract off the mountain via rigging, mm -hmm. repelling. You know, th th these guys are absolutely amazing with what they're able to do. Um, our snowmobilers as well, they'll tell you that they absolutely love having a mission, having defined parameters where they know exactly where they need to go. Yeah, They'll pull the patient off and, and, and get them back, and then we can all uh, get home safely. Um, so if you want to talk about the numbers of saves, um, uh, we were, we're up to 17 that are credited to the drone themselves. 17 oh, wow. saves in the last three years. And then, um, but if you talk to our ground teams, one of the, their favorite aspects of it with our Matrice uh, 300, our M300, for example, we have the GL60 uh, zoom spotlight and they absolutely love the ambient light that we're able to give them uh, once they're yep. triaging the patient, being able to see the train as they come down, as they're hooking up our, uh, the patient in, the, in their harness and rig to be able to get them off a cliff. Um, they love the spotlight. Uh, if you talk to our incident command staff, they'll tell you that they absolutely love being uh, in, uh, have their situational awareness be such that they're able to communicate properly to the ground teams that actually can see what is going on because the, the drone is feeding, uh, giving that live feed back to either their cell phones or our incident command vehicle. So uh, I, I, as far as how successful the, 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 the program is, I think each team or each uh, perspective will give you uh, a different uh, an idea, but I think overall we've been pretty successful. Was yeah, sound like it? Was that um, was that success or the contribution that drones uh, brought to search and rescue? Was that immediately clear to to everybody who's involved in those operations, or did it take time for people to understand? Oh, these drones are more than toys, and they can actually be useful. Um, no, for us in our particular county, we were lucky in that our very first call out was those uh, th that rescue that I was speaking of earlier of those three um, lost uh, early twenties. Uh, men that were cliffed out 
and two canyons to the south of their original cell phone ping. So we were able to direct our ground teams and everybody that was on that rescue was an immediate yeah. uh, believer. Prior to, it was just more of, you know, the, the, this little photography drone, what is it going to do? Most of them didn't yeah. even know that they had thermal capabilities or the range or the, the potential of what, what they could do. So after that first rescue, it was immediate for our search and rescue team. Could could you imagine uh, a world where you guys would work without drones? Now that you got into this point, or is that is it like standard equipment at this point? It's standard and essential equipment at this yeah. point. It's uh, for our team. It's it's as uh, required. It, it's as necessary as a helmet or a harness. They wow. if if given a chance or given a choice, they would. I don't think our team would choose to go without a drone, even if we know where our patient is. Being able to have eyes on scene and keep our incident command uh, aware of the situation is invaluable. I can think also of a couple, I haven't even spoken of the families uh, of the lost individuals and what the drones do for them and their peace of mind. For example, there were uh, two ladies that were out hiking. Um, they got up into elevations that exceeded 9,000 feet and into some deep snow in May of last year. And um, they they, they started getting frostbite on their feet and couldn't move anywhere. Mm -hmm. So they decided to hunker down, called 911, and we were deployed. Um, their family members were able to watch at Incident Command and see that oh. their mothers and sisters were safe. There was no more guesswork. We allowed them to come in and they could wave at the camera and they could see what was going on. And so just the the reassurance to the family that, mm -hmm. that their family members are okay is invaluable. Just this last February, um, we were fortunate enough to log the very first rescue with the brand new M30 that uh, DJI highlighted yeah. when they announced the uh, M30 um, just last month. But um, we had that gentleman's wife in the incident command vehicle with us, and she was able to see her husband and her demeanor went from panic when she first showed up to calm. Okay. He's all right. I can see the ski team getting to him. He's going to be all right. So it's invaluable. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what makes this is actually a perfect transition to my next question. What makes a good uh, search and rescue drone? What are the features, the things that you're looking for uh, when you, uh, when you're about to purchase a drone? Um, one, the drone needs to have a, a fantastic camera on it, uh, a zoom lens coupled with a, a high-resolution thermal imager. Um, mm -hmm. We, without those two items, it would be uh, we would be severely limited. Uh, we love the Mavic Two Enterprise Advanced. We also have a, an Evo Two. We love those, but without the really strong zoom lens that we have on the M three uh, hundred and the M thirty. Um, it, it does limit you quite a bit. We've also played with the Dragonfish by Altel, fantastic drone that provides, uh, that gives you so many uh, capabilities. So you need to have the payload, the, the camera and the thermal uh, needs to be top notch. Also, it needs to have a really uh, long endurance. Longer the endurance, the better. The longer that you can stay yeah. in the air, yeah. the more likely you are to either find your patient or stay on uh, station a little bit longer. So the endurance is absolutely critical. For all of that and then of course your range and that's where the dragonfish certainly does uh, reign supreme with with its range um but the m30 is no slouch and nor is that m300 um so i would say long range uh good endurance and a solid payload package yeah. is the portability important for you you mentioned the matrice 300 i would guess it's probably a little bit harder to hike with one of those you, yeah, you wouldn't hike with that. So you, you know, different tools for different scenarios. So if yep. you're having to hike and get up into the mountains, then you're definitely not going to take the M300. You'll take the M30. The M30 fits in your backpack, or you're going to take an Evo 2 or the Mavic 2 Enterprise Advanced. So uh, different tools for different scenarios. Uh, the M300 right now in our uh, arsenal is our main go-to. Um, just because of the spotlight that it offers and all the capabilities with the H20T. But uh, for oh, wow. quick deployment, the M30 and the Evo 2 and the Mavic 2 Enterprise Advance are, are right there with it. So you, you, awesome. you mentioned thermal imaging and thermal cameras uh, a couple of times. Uh, for people that are listening to our show that might not know the importance, can you explain why a thermal camera on a drone is such a uh, valuable asset to have? 
Oh, yeah, you bet. So the thermal camera, uh, basically what a thermal camera does, if you get into thermography, all it does is basically it detects the differences in temperature of the environment of what you're looking at. Uh, we don't really necessarily care about what the temperature is. We just want to be able to see the differences in the screen itself. So whether it be 12 noon daylight or midnight with no light, you're going to be able to have the very same image. The biggest, um, uh, I would say, advantage that a thermal camera has over a regular RGB camera is that a thermal camera, you're able to pick up movement very quickly. Um, and uh, abnormal, unnatural um, uh, shapes. Mm -hmm. So if the person's moving at all, waving at all, or uh, warm body sitting underneath a uh, in the shade or on top of some cold snow, um, then that it pops out. Uh, you're just able to see so much. It just gives you another arrow in your quiver and some more tools to be able to find your patient. You cannot rely on just the thermal imager. You cannot rely on just the RGB camera. You can't just rely on a certain palette in thermal either, whether it be white hot, black hot. Mm -hmm. You need to bounce back and forth because different temperatures might, or different scenarios, different backgrounds, the emissivity of the items that you're looking at might not uh, be conducive to looking at it in white hot. You need to switch it over to black hot. But uh, the thermal imager is just an invaluable tool. It's another tool that allows us, that enables us to be able to um, find our patient. Fun fact, the um, uh, thermal camera is great for navigating at night. Um, and that's one of our primary uses for it at night is to navigate. Because if you're just in your regular RGB camera, you can't see the mountains and the trees yeah. unless you have the spotlight looking straight ahead. But even if with the spotlight, you're probably going to see more bugs or snow than you're going to see anything else if you're moving. Mm -hmm. um, but that thermal camera allows you to navigate. At night, if the patient that you're looking for happens to have a cell phone or a flashlight, that RGB camera actually is a lot more useful than the thermal camera at night for finding a patient if they have a light. Because you can't see the light in the thermal, but you can in the RGB. So uh, different tools. You have to bounce back and forth. Yeah. There's not a one... Uh, one tool that is perfect for every scenario. But it sounds like if you were going to buy wow. drones for a search and rescue team, you would want to have a thermal camera as part of that payload package. It's a must. Yeah. It's an absolute necessity. Yeah. You cannot have a successful, full, uh, well-rounded uh, search and rescue yeah. team without a thermal camera. I think on uh, it was maybe two years ago in England where they had like three or four hundred volunteers like uh, walk like I don't know four or five feet uh, apart from each other, like working their way through a field looking for a small child that was lost and uh, darkness was setting in, and they had been searching for this kid for mm -hmm. quite some time. They had a drone pilot show up with a drone with a thermal camera, and within seconds they had found the kids. And it's like, all right, so. That's the power of a drone with a uh, with a thermal camera. Fantastic! Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. What What are some of the features that we don't have in drones right now that you would like to see for search and rescue? Um, of course, uh, as an operator, I'm always going to ask for more endurance. I'm always going to ask for a stronger um, uh, zoom camera, yeah. and um, I'm always going to ask for more distance. Um, as long as I can get more of that the more uh, the, the possibility of us saving lives is, it enhances. Um, another thing that I would really like to have, and I've, I've spoken to the engineers at DJI and I've reached out to Autel about this, is uh, let's, let's talk about the M300, for example. If we're searching a cliff face, so it's just a cliff face. And so we're able to hover the drone, let's say at uh, 6,500 feet uh, above sea level and just point that drone right at that cliff face looking for our patient. We'll be glassing it just like a hunter will be glassing this, the, the mountainside, but the drone itself isn't moving. So how can we track where we've searched? Where haven't we searched? Ah. These, these drones have the telemetry, like for example, with the H20T, it has the laser rangefinder on there. So it's continuously mm -hmm. figuring out that trigonometry of what the angle is and what the latitude longitude is of the uh, item that we're glassing with that laser rangefinder. I would like to be able to export that data mm -hmm. so we can put it into our computers. So then that way we know exactly what we've looked at, even though that the drone didn't move. Right now, all the tracking software, the majority of it anyway, is where the drone physically moves over the ground. Yeah. Doesn't keep track. Was the drone facing this way? Was it facing that way? Was the camera straight down? Was it straight forward? Was it straight up? Mm -hmm. I want to know where that camera is facing to be able to have 
a, a better uh, record of where it is that we have searched or where we haven't searched. So the current technology, even if, yeah. if you're, even if you're using like um, a software like um, Locate mm -hmm. uh, or any of those other software, that camera's pointed straight down and it agrees. And then that way you're able to keep track of it. But when you're glassing a mountain cliff, which we've done several times on a number of uh, rescues, it's impossible for us to keep track of where it is that we we search. So, you know, that just goes back onto us as search and rescue um, uh, professionals to keep track of it mentally or write it down um, and with our search theory and, you know, old school, mixing the uh, blending the old school with the new school. Yeah, but I mean, uh, I haven't heard this suggestion before, but I think it's uh, it's genius because we know the position of the drone. We know the orientation of the drone. We know the orientation of the camera. So if you have a elevation map in Google Maps, you'd be able to theoretically at least merge that information and know exactly what ground you've covered and, and what areas are still uh, left to be searched. And the USGS has, uh, our, uh, did I say that acronym right? The, um, they they have all the different maps with the altitude. Yeah. And so we should be able to implement that data into their mapping software. But, uh, you know, in talking to the engineers at DJI, and I totally understand where they're coming from, they're trying to make a product that's, uh, uh, that fits and satisfies all the industries. Yeah. And truthfully, yeah. search and rescue, we are a very small niche of the drone community. Yeah. Uh, we don't make a lot of money for them. You know, mm -hmm. there's just not simply, uh, and most teams are volunteer based. So how many of us can afford $35,000 to purchase an M300 platform? We actually had to do fundraising in, in our County to be able to raise the funds, to be able to do it. But, um, uh, so for them to, that would, that would take a lot of engineering yeah. skill and programming to be able to get what, you know, all, all that data exported. So I can understand where they're coming from, that it may not be worth their time, but I don't know. I, I mean, it would be very valuable at, at the same. I mean, you're right. That maybe in, in terms of drones that they would sell, uh, search and rescue is not such a huge market to them. However, if you look at mm -hmm. the value that drones bring to society, it might be the most valuable part of the drone industry because this is where you're immediately affecting people's lives. You're saving people's lives potentially. So uh, if, if you look at value in that sense, um, I'm not even sure what other part of the drone industry would uh, would compete with search and rescue. Well, it, I, I would also argue that law enforcement is much the yeah. same way as well. Yeah. They, they could they could implement that software as well. Yeah. So um, we, uh, of course, caught the eye of our sheriff. We have a very forward thinking sheriff here in Weber County. He's been fantastic and a huge supporter. He's uh, now uh, driving uh, 120 miles an hour trying to get the uh, drone program set up for the for the sheriff's department. Uh, including dropping a lot of money for a uh, command uh, trailer, a van that uh, we couldn't be more excited for. But um, the, let's let's paint the scenario for uh, for law enforcement if they are in Chula Vista, for example, mm -hmm. as well, uh, down in uh, San Diego area. If they're in hot pursuit of a uh, of someone. You know, that drone may not be able to fly. They, they might choose not to fly over someone's private property. So they're going to stay over the, the, the streets. So in post, when they're trying to prove that they did or did not see certain things, yeah. if they had that telemetry as they're chasing uh, uh, the perp, um, then they, they will be able to document that, take it to, yeah. to court or at least to the private citizens. Or uh, I know uh, Chula Vista, they do a fantastic job, their police department, they do a fantastic job down there with their um, uh, with keeping everything public and public knowledge. They have the policy that whenever they do a return to home, that gimbal goes right back to center, does not look down, does not look at anything else. And that's what they've promised their citizens there. But if they could document that and yeah. actually have the telemetry to prove that that's what they're doing, um, I think that that would be invaluable to law enforcement as well, not just search and rescue. Yeah. Um, go, going back yeah. to the uh, ideal search and rescue drone for a second, um, the ability to hand over the controls to a second pilot who's positioned somewhere else, how important is that uh, for you for search and rescue? So we have ran that scenario several times in, in training where we'll put a smart controller uh, using the M300, for example. Uh, we'll put one of the smart controllers in um, our motorcycle team's backpack. So we're painting that scenario where we want to be able to glass an entire mountain peak. Mm -hmm. And we'll, let's assume that we have enough battery power to do it. We'll put a pair of batteries 
in the backpack of one of the um, motorcycle or snowmobile team with a smart controller. They'll go up on that peak, wait for the handoff. They'll take the drone over, finish the search grid, pass it back over to me. I'll bring it down and land. It, it is it is um, a scenario in which we've we've trained for. We haven't actually encountered yet, but um, it, as soon as we do uh, implement that uh, that technique, I'll be sure to let you guys know and share the videos. Yeah. Um, but where the most value comes with that second controller is the uh, gimbal operator. So you can have the pilot, going back to the way in which we've uh, set up our drone team here in Weber County, we try to implement the same rules and regulations that we have in the airline in that we try to maintain a sterile cockpit. So our pilots and our gimbal operators are isolated. We have someone that will uh, uh, run interference and not allow other people, spectators, passerbys to come up and talk to the pilots, look over their shoulders, interrupt them. Because when the drone's up in the air, we have uh, potentially our, uh, it's above our patient, above our ground teams, above other hikers. So we want to maintain the highest level of safety possible. So having that pilot focused on piloting the aircraft and not having to worry about operating the gimbal and also doing the searching at the same time increases our uh, level of safety significantly. So then we have our gimbal operator that is working with the pilot in tandem. And the gimbal operator, you with that second controller on the M300, for example, also capable on the M30 um, and uh, and uh, the Dragonfish, um, you're able to, uh, that person is able to focus on just searching, not having to worry about where the drone is, what the telemetry is, or needing to maintain any kind of situational awareness when it comes to piloting the drone. So by dividing up those responsibilities, we feel that our level of safety goes up significantly, just like what we do in the cockpit of these commercial airliners. Uh, Two pilots, always. And each pilot, he or her, have their own duties depending on the flight segment, uh, depending on what leg it is. Both pilots are capable of flying and doing uh, all the uh, pilot monitoring duties. And so that's what we do as well here. Yep. Sterile cockpit and crew resource management. That's the key. Yeah. CRM uh, is huge. CRM is huge. And, and yeah. I, I've found that a lot of people are starting to implement it. It was started, I, if I remember right, United Airlines back in the uh, 70s and uh, became mainline in the 80s. And it was developed by the airlines, CRM, crew resource management. And um, it, even uh, today, whenever we have our monthly, I'm sorry, our biannual trainings in the airlines, we pound that CRM into us using all of your resources, whether it be your dispatcher, whether it be the pilot sitting next to you, whether it be the flight attendants, whether it be the air traffic controller, whether it be the operations manager and search and rescue, that's going to be our incident commander. That's going to be uh, the person that's running interference for us. We call him our air commander, whether it be your gimbal operator, whether it be your spotter, whether it be the person that is in the incident command trailer looking at the big screen as our squinter as an additional eyes on the screen to help us search. So using utilizing our every resource that's available to you, having your um, your uh, your VO look up the weather report if there's a storm rolling in, keep you updated on what the weather conditions are. All of it is invaluable with CRM. So thank you for mentioning yep. that. Hundred percent. Yeah, I I, I, um, I have a course on fasafety.gov uh, that we build with the FA on uh, just that CRM for drone pilots, and uh, yeah, it's so important. I think it's very often overlooked by a lot of people because it's concepts, right? It's a lot of concepts, the CRM thing. But you're an airline pilot, so you understand all that and how important that well, is. Well, and so, not to get me uh, on a, on a soapbox, you know, I hear there's some other. Um, podcasters and YouTubers that like to brag about the safety record that drones have. And the comparison to compare drone safety to uh, manned flight safety is just an oxymoron and just ridiculous on its face. So nine, uh, you know, you talk, you, you go grab any drone pilot. They're probably not even going to know what CRM is because to them, the drone is just mm-hmm. a toy it's a camera. Mm-hmm. It's a flying camera and they just want to have fun with it. But from a manned aircraft's perspective, you know, you're occupying the very same airspace. And it's shocking to me when I'm on these forums or on the Facebook pages, like the the commercial UAS Facebook page. And it's shocking to me how little drone pilots actually know about the airspace that they're occupying. 
And um, CRM is so very important. Education is so very important. I'm a big proponent of what you do, Greg, and, and the products that you put out. I think that they're fantastic. So um, I, I just wanted to commend you for all of your efforts and, and what you do. Yeah, I appreciate that. I've, you know, I'm like you. I, I sit in the airplane every once in a while, and it's uh, it's important that people understand that it's like you said, not just a toy flying in the airspace. It's so much more than that, and it can become so much more than that to the people that are flying in the airspace. So yeah, we uh, we get to play with that. But that kind of brings me to my next question. Um, all of this program, you you probably had to deal with the FA and work with the FA. Uh, has it been working with them and uh, and maybe getting waivers, or how do you operate right now? Now, everything under Part 107, do you have a COA as well? How does that work? Um, the FAA, um, so I've been working with them for the last 20 to 23 years, um, whether it be with my licenses, my ratings, medicals, or, or or other issues. And then jumping into the UAV world with the FAA, I have just found that the, those men and women at the FAA have just been fantastic to work with. They do not want to limit us. They do not want to legislate. Mm -hmm. They do not want to uh, punish or uh, or do anything else that um, so many people think that they want to. They are not the police. Yep. They are partners with you, and they want to make sure that everybody has the proper education and that safety is paramount. So as long as uh, you know, they might be sticklers on the on the paperwork every once in a while, but that's only because they have to be. And um, as long as you approach the FAA with that perspective that they are just – their number one um, goal is to maintain the safety of the airspace, not only for the, the, the drones, the pilots, the passengers in the air, but also for the people on the ground. The FAA, I, I think, have been absolutely fantastic. So when it comes to the uh, search and rescue team, we operate under 107 only. Uh, we don't necessarily have a need or um, uh, to get a COA for our search and rescue team. We don't operate in any kind of control airspace for the search and rescue purposes. So that's that's where we are right now. The sheriff's department uh, is is going to be is a little bit different. Where COAs, uh, an airspace class delta airspace in this area, is uh, going to be it's going to be um, uh, it is required to have the COA. But uh, as, as the drone search and rescue uh, team coordinator, no, we, we're just strict 107 and uh, we have a good working relationship with our local, local FISDO and uh, we talk to them monthly. There's also a, the local airport here. Our tower manager is fantastic to work with. He's a big fan. He's a big proponent. Um, so I feel that when it comes to um, the federal government, the FAA, the, the FAA representatives, communication and shared mental model, as they say in C CRM, that as long as your goal is to maintain safety, they're going to be your biggest advocates and your biggest cheerleaders. Yeah. I, I've been wondering, how does that work? I mean, when people get lost in a mountainous area, I mean, a lot of times it's it's in less than ideal conditions. I mean, night might be setting in, there might be snowfall, rainy conditions, foggy conditions. Um how is it working with the FEA when you need to be able to fly beyond visual line of sight, let's say, or if you need to fly at night or you need to fly in, in conditions that are typically not the safest conditions to fly a drone in? We don't fly. We don't fly. Um, we're, we're, no, we don't fly. Uh, for a lot of different reasons, since uh, safety um, is our mm -hmm. number one you know, goal, not only of the aircraft, but also to make sure that we get our patient home safely um, and all of our teams as well. That if there's, if it's foggy, if we're any FAA regulations uh, that we, yeah, we, we simply just do not fly. Yeah. We haven't had a need for BBLOS waiver as of yet in search and rescue mm -hmm. um, uh, for the sheriff's department. And we're hoping to get that with uh, working with uh, DJI and their doc and Cape. Motorola Cape, uh, we're we're working on that one, but uh, the as far as search and rescue, yeah. If if we don't have the weather minima, if the winds are such, if it, you know, we simply don't yep. fly. We have put the M three hundred up in rain and snow and what wind windy conditions that the M three hundred can handle, but uh, visibility, yeah, we don't mess yeah. around with that. We just simply don't. I fly. think that's uh, that's. Very likely the safest and the smartest uh, approach. It sounds like um, going back to the FEA. Do you do you think that the FEA does a good enough job uh, or effective enough of a job in terms of educating drone pilots about the dangers and how to fly safely and responsibly? So 
you know, there's, I think that's a two part question. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the first part of that question, we need to understand where the FAA is coming from and the, uh, you know, the deal that they were dealt, the hand that they were dealt with drones because the industry has moved and progressed a yeah. lot faster than the FAA has been able to keep up with. So the drones came on scene uh, long before there were really any kind of regulations. Um, you know, they're still trying to figure all of this out right along with us. So, um, you know, that it's, given the fact that they're a government agency and a big one at that, it's like a cruise ship. It takes a while yeah. for it to pivot. And even still, with since their primary um, goal is safety, they can't just jump on regulations or just come up with regulations out of the hat and just say, this is it. They need to conduct studies mm-hmm. and uh, they need to ensure that what they're saying and, and uh, the rules that they're implementing, the, the regulations, that they will actually save lives or, pr- or promote safety. It would be the wrong call for them to d- jump to some kind of conclusion and implement some kind of regulation before it's been properly studied. And, yeah. um, once the regulation's in, it's it's usually harder. It's better for them to wait. So um, when I see the uh, hand that they're dealt, yes, I think they're doing a good job. I think they're listening. And just this last big uh, rule regulation change, I think, uh, shows that, that they are listening. They're trying to listen to everybody. They can't, just it, like a manufacturer, they can't just make one specific drone that's specific to one industry, right? The FAA has, is, is in the same boat. They have to make rules and regulations for all the industries, for the hobbyists all mm-hmm. the way up to, you know, public safety and uh, commercial drone operators that do inspections, including the railroads and, and uh, uh, all, all those inspection companies. So they have to come up with, uh, it, it's, it's complicated and it's hard. I do wish that they were as advanced in the UAV regulations as they are in manned flight uh, regulations. But as they say, FAA regulations are typically written in blood. Yeah. Meaning we had to have an accident. People had to die for those current regulations. And they're trying really, really hard to not have UAV regulations written in blood, which I respect and understand. Do I wish it were better? Absolutely. It's... I, I certainly do wish there was more education, but you know you have to take mm-hmm. the whole, every, the whole. Got to keep everything yeah. into perspective. I mean, like, meant aviation, of course, they've had what like more than a hundred years. It's kind of slowly progressed and and then ramped up later on. Drones came on the scene and just exploded, and uh, so many different people have been using them for so many different purposes. So it's 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 not hard to imagine that it'd be tough for uh, a government body to to uh, keep up to speed and and. Uh, come up with the right rules at the right time. Yeah. Also, I think what the FAA has done, you know, uh, like you said, the the uh, main aircraft rules have been written in blood over over a hundred years. What the FAA has done instead for drones is they started a hundred years down the line, and then now they're going backwards and making yeah. things easier as we go because they didn't want to have these accidents. So, uh, you know, going back to what you mentioned earlier, where you said, "Well, yeah, we don't, we haven't had any fatal accident. Well, are we are we not had any fatal accident because of this approach, and then now we can start to relax things." until maybe we do and we know it's going to happen eventually there will be a fatality related to drones and it'll be interesting to see the reaction from the fa at that stage whether they get more stringent or if they keep the level where they are and um i I think it's going to be it's going to be very interesting but um I wanted to talk about remote ID because uh, how much of an effect do you think is remote ID going to have on your operation specifically? So um, that was, I did actually write a letter uh, back during that public uh, opinion period on that when remote ID was being proposed. And um, I understand, I'm not a huge fan of remote ID for various reasons. Um, Even my work with uh, law enforcement, uh, I'm still not an overly big fan of it, uh, nor do I, uh, but I understand why the FAA wants to have some kind of uh, keep tabs on people. I mean, I understand it, even though I don't agree with it. My biggest thing from a search and rescue perspective, like we talked about previous, I need endurance. I need that flight time. I need it. And I need a lot of it. Adding more, I don't want to call it unnecessary Mm -hmm. tech onto my platform is going to increase the weight, which reduces my fly time, which in turn can 
you know, it makes it harder to save lives. So for the, from a search and rescue perspective only, any kind of additional useless weight, I'm going to say for, Mm -hmm. you know, tongue in cheek, um, I'm against. So it, 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 the, uh, hopefully the battery technology keeps them on improving. Um, the, the drones keep on getting lighter to be able to compensate for it. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of putting any unnecessary tech on my, on my platform. I can totally understand where you come from. I mean, um, the whole development and implementation of remote ID is already like a multi-year process for an organization like the FAA. Um, do you think that the first iteration of remote ID is almost like a one size fits all. Do you think that it might be wise for the FAA to come up with a different remote ID requirement for different parts of the drone industry? So let's say separating FPV flyers from uh, kids who fly them as toys from organizations like yours, where you use them for search and rescue. Yeah, I think that would be ideal. I mean, I, that, that sounds fantastic, but the impl- uh, you know, the FAA again, trying to implement yeah. everything and then try to make fair, everything fair for everybody. And, you know, the, they're, they're wrapping their lips around the fire hose and trying to <laughs> swallow. And, and I mean, how, how can anybody stand in front of this industry and try to regulate it when it's going so fast, new technology oh, yeah. comes mm-hmm. out all the time. Uh, like, like, for example, here in the state of Utah, there was a Utah state code, uh, the Video Surveillance mm-hmm. Act, and it has a lot of case law throughout the country that's associated with it. But it clearly states that if you're uh, if you have a thermal imager, you're not allowed to use it on a structure, but bring in drones. When you toss up a Mavic 2 Enterprise Advance or an Evo 2 or, you know, any of the thermal capable drones, that thermal camera is going. It's on. It's turned on. You cannot turn it off. You cannot isolate it. So therefore, you're in violation yeah. of state code so we actually had to approach a congressman a state congressman to try to get that change to bring the regulations up to the technology and i think it's it's a mad dash i bring that example up as a general example of it's so hard to make regulations today for the technology that'll be coming out tomorrow so um it's hard i i don't envy their job their position but please just don't make my drones any heavier I want, I want, I need that endurance. <laughs> uh, well, so let's, let's get to the next topic, which is make you drone heavier or make you not be able to use your drone at all because of regulation, like what we saw in Florida, uh, where DJI drones and hotel drones specifically are not allowed to be flown for, uh, for state type yeah. of, for government work, right? Let's put it simply. Are you afraid of this happening either in your state or of something similar where you wouldn't be able, your entire fleet would be grounded all at once? That would be that would be catastrophic for you. It would be. But given the fact that we are a volunteer network, we are not state employees, we're not state employed, uh, I think we are going to be okay in that sense. Um, however, it is my opinion and this is my personal opinion, the, the, the those regulations that say that you cannot use uh, it's they're unfounded. The the concerns are unfounded. They are baseless. Um, I, I you know I have plenty of opinions on it, but I'll, I will say this: that policy, uh, uh, you know, using only blue drones, is going to cost yeah. lives. It is yep. you are putting an inferior tool into the hands of professionals and saying good luck, where there is yep. a more capable tool. And saying that 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 they'll be able to use to go save lives. If I was forced, now I'm a big proponent. Uh, I, I want all U.S. manufacturers to be successful. I want mm-hmm. them to come up and, and be able to compete with with the foreign uh, manufacturers. But the truth is, simply, they're just not there. Price point's not there. The quality's yep. not there. The range, the, they're just simply not there. But I want them to be, but they're just not. So by limiting professional tools, just tools on hearsay false you know just false accusations um is, is criminal in my mind but that's just my own personal opinion and does not represent ah, but we are we are very much interested in your opinions because you are a experienced professional drone pilot who uses drones to save lives so i think your opinion matters a lot um i do want to talk a little more about blue suas uh, you already mentioned they're more expensive they're uh less uh 
uh, capable, if you will. They don't come with the same features and the same quality that we see in some other drones. How much of an issue is that for volunteer organizations or organizations where budgets are limited and they need to go through an entire process just to be able to get, let's say, uh, to uh, DJI Mavic to enterprise drones? I mean, how much of an issue is it when you're now forced to get into drones that are more expensive? Well, uh, as a volunteer group, I don't think they will be forced mm -hmm. into that. Uh, I think the regulations, I could be You're uh, right on wrong this, yeah. on that. But uh, yeah, so the so the volunteer group, I, I, you are, if it's your own personal drone and, you know, then you're, you're yeah. welcome to get whatever you want. At least I can only really speak for Utah and for uh, Weber County. And so for our M300, our DJI, there was, when we, when we got it in, um, uh, in 2020, we, we fundraised all of 2020 and, um, we were finally able to, to purchase it. It was done via those fundraising, uh, monies and it, it's owned by the volunteer group, not by the County, not by the state. So, um, as of right now, I don't think it's too much of an issue and I hope it remains as such and shame on any Congressman legislator that, uh, falls into the, the, the politic trap to to implement those regulations yeah. and i certainly hope that that trend is not how spread. about uh, police departments fire departments though where they are dealing with either state funds or federal funds yeah same boat um thankfully uh, we don't have that issue here but you know if all we could have I, i'm not going to name any um u.s manufacturer drone uh, but if we were forced to only use those um the drone programs yeah. wouldn't launch they would not be as successful they it just would not be a, an asset or a tool that would be any more than just the the toy that you know of what the drones were five years ago so um I mean, they're years and years behind. So I, I do think that it, it could be a problem for uh, the law enforcement. It's just delaying everything. And like I said earlier, I mean, and I, I will stand on this principle. It is costing lives. It is putting lives at risk. And, and so we see blue UAS version 2.0, where we see more manufacturers, more capabilities, which is, I think, a step in the right direction from the, the 1.0 version. But... I personally believe that the answer is performance-based rather than country of origin. So as long as the drone can perform to certain standards, then it should be allowed to be used. Is that the solution? What What is the solution to solve this problem that this industry has at the moment with these battles of country of origin? How about just having evidence of the accusation? <laughs> That's... You know, if you're going to if you're going to come out and accuse a manufacturer of doing something, please provide the truth. If you have an outrageous claim, you need to have outrageous evidence to, to back that up. Don't yep. just come uh, well, to we've... the table with rumors or hearsay or speculation. So how about let's have it be evidence based. Yep. Just like I, I, I'm a big fitness and, and nutrition uh, nut. Um uh, Lane Norton is one of my favorite guys uh, on YouTube that, that talks about nutrition. He's a PhD in nutrition and he continuously says, you know, facts don't care about yeah. your feelings. Y you have to yeah. be evidence-based. And if you're going to come to the table with an accusation, you're going to accuse the Chinese manufacturers of stealing or spying on us, then please prove yeah. it first before you implement any kind of laws and regulations. And if any country, I don't, I don't care if it's China, Germany, North, I don't care what country it is. If they want to spy on me, taking care of my neighbors, uh, then, then go for it. I, I, I don't care. I can understand it for uh, the military yeah. and, and stuff like that. But, but if we're taking care of our own, you know, I, I think the whole concept is ridiculous on its nature because it's, it's faceless. It's factless. It has no merit to the argument. I well. hear what you're saying, and I, uh, I'm inclined yeah. to agree. Uh, innocent until proven guilty, right? But I don't have any strong opinions <laughs> on the matter. I apologize. <laughs> all right. Oh, it's all good. We we've been talking about this a long, long time with uh, Haya and other guests, and I think it's a it's a general yeah. feeling in the industry. So there's two camps, but one is pretty prevalent. Well, what if so. what if they said that we could only fly aircraft that were only built here in the United States? That means yep. no Airbuses. And yep. in my opinion, having flown both Boeing and Airbus, Airbus is superior. There you go. 
but no, I agree. I mean, I think if if you with the blue SUS program, they almost create like this protected artificial market segment, and you pay. Um, I've I've seen numbers where they say uh, up to seven times more for a drone that delivers less. So it's 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 way more expensive. And I think when lives are at stake, uh, as you have with first responders and search and rescue, you need to be able to get the best tools and also at the lowest price. Not because you necessarily need a cheaper drone, but it will allow more organizations to get their hands on these drones and therefore help save more lives. So um, I totally agree where you, uh, with your statements and I understand where you come from. Um, we're getting towards the last part of this interview and I'd like to um, focus on, okay, how can we promote drones? How can we educate people, uh, especially when it comes to search and rescue? Do you have any uh, ideas or best practices or places pe where people can go to to either learn about drones or to learn about how do you start your drone program in, let's say, another organization in another county? Well, there's that one uh, website, Pilot Institute, that here is pretty good. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I had to throw that in there for you. Um, I think, you know, as a, as a whole, um, it, it just... When I first, uh, when we first started doing our um, uh, fundraising for our M300, and I would reach out to different individuals, whether they be business owners or uh, community leaders, and I'd tell them the capabilities of the drone, the knee-jerk reaction is always, oh, big brother, huh? And um, as more and more people are becoming familiar with drones and what their capabilities are and what they're mm -hmm. used for, I think just over time, as people get used to them and, and and understand them a little bit better, I think you know time. I think is going to be the perfect equalizer with with all of it. So um, I, we are, uh, you know, pick, to pick on the United States, we are a country of assume first and think later, and um, or even think <laughs> at all. Sometimes we, especially politically, we don't think at all sometimes, but. Um, I, I just wish people would ask more questions and try to educate themselves rather than just assume that their assumptions are correct about, uh, about drones. So if I could, um, I guess my message would be to just ask questions, call up your local uh, police department, fire department, uh, reach out to your local search and rescue team, reach out to professionals in the field, whether they be educational platforms like Pilot Institute or uh, other people that are prominent on YouTube, whether they be uh, re uh, reviewers, just you know, reach out to people that are experts in the field. I, actually, this is another soapbox of mine. Uh, it just, I think one of the reasons why drones haven't taken off in the public sector quite like they probably could have is because um, they haven't reached out to aviation professionals. Um, you can be a, an expert in drones without being a professional or an expert in aviation. And I think if there were more aviation professionals in the drone industry, I think that would propel and help the industry out quite a bit. And I, I recognize my bias in that, but uh, it, it has been my experience. When I'm helping other uh, search and rescue teams, I have traveled across the country um, helping other uh, search and rescue teams set up their program. And those that have an aviation professional, whether they, they be just uh, someone with their uh, PPL or uh, a CFI or even an airline pilot that's there or a former military pilot, they are a lot more successful in launching the entire program because they understand the industry. They understand the airspace. Mm -hmm. They understand uh, what it takes to maintain safety in the air. So uh, I think that uh, it, it, talking to an aviation professional, I think, goes a long way. Yeah, th thank you for for saying this. This is something we've been faced in my line of work. Obviously, we educate people, and and we do find we're we're trying to make drone pilots aviators, and I think that's the word, right? When you have someone who's been in an aircraft and has been in that airspace, trying to make them understand like an aviator, not like. Uh, and I, I'm saying drone pilot, it sounds diminishing, but it's not. Have them think about the entire ecosystem. So that's extremely, extremely important. So thanks for Well, we all share that, the same airspace, sure. right? Um, I can't even begin to tell you yep. how many times 
I haven't kept track, but how many times I've come in on final approach, whether that be into LAX, um, more recently into JFK, where I have seen drones off the side, uh, outside of my aircraft. And it scares me to death that there are drone operators that are not acting as aviators and tossing their drones up in unsafe scenarios. And um, yep. it just, it, you know, all it yep. takes is just one, just takes one. You know, it comes to mind that uh, that gentleman down in Las Vegas that lost yep. control of his drone and that landed right on the taxiway at McCarran International. That kind of stuff scares me yeah. to death. Um, and that's education. Yeah. That's education. We all need to be doing our job to educate because I still believe that 90%, and I'm making this number up, of the people that fly and do illegal things don't do it on purpose. They do it because they're not educated and, and we need to do a better job at, at, at doing that. So uh, I give people the benefit of the doubt as much as I can. And, you know, quite often that's exactly what it is. It's just don't. Well, know. and to piggyback on what you say, I, I just said I do agree with you, but then there's also that segment of people that don't yeah. understand the consequences of their actions if they do decide to break the regulations they don't yeah. understand how yeah. big of a deal it potentially is there's a guy here locally that decided to yeah. take his drone and fly it up through a cloud layer through the the inversion that we have here in the in the winter time busted through the clouds and then took video of it and then brought it right back down and was foolish enough to put it out on his social media thankfully the faa got him yeah. but the, the they're just people out there that just are blissfully unaware of the consequences of and the, re yeah. the reasons why we have these regulations and why they're in place. I mean, there's a difference between yeah. being a, an educated aviator and being a professional and and understanding why the regulations yeah. are there in the first place. I think place. it's uh, that's the challenge with drones, right? I mean, yeah. the barrier to entry yeah. is so low. I mean, drones are they're, they're cheap. You can get them at Best Buy. You can get them at Walmart. Like, they're easy to get your hands on. But then once you fly them, and even though they might be small, you're using the same airspace that MED Aviation is using as well. And I think it was, what, two or three years ago where we saw a drone video of a jet taken off, like a passenger jet, a commercial one. It's like, what are you thinking being in that airspace to begin with, with uh, your drone? It's uh, Sometimes it's crazy for sure. Yeah. It scares me to death as, as yeah. one of those guys whose who's rear end is in the seat of those commercial yeah. airliners, who's responsible for all the lives that are – you know, the 200 people that are occupying the seats behind me, it scares me to yeah. death that there might be someone out there that yeah. has no education. Like you said, the entry to or the barrier to entry is so low and they don't have no, the, they don't. Skin in the They game. lose their toy. If, if, yeah. if, if the drone crashes. Yeah. yeah. That's so uh, more more work to be done to educate uh, drone flyers. Um, we're coming towards the end. Uh, we're at the end pretty much of, of the interview. I feel like we could go on for hours because there's so much to talk about. But uh, thank you so much for sharing all your experience and your knowledge, uh, specifically because you're a drone pilot and also an, uh, a meant aviation pilot. I think that definitely uh, adds uh, an extra layer to this. Um, our final question that we always ask our guests at the end of the interview is, what is your own favorite drone to fly? I really yeah. love that M30. That M30 is so much fun to fly. Um, it, it's yep. quick. It's responsive. It has so many capabilities. Um, that uh, M30 is, it, it's a lot of fun to fly. Um, of course, FPV drones are always a good time, but there's just something about that M30 that maybe it's the controller. I don't know, but it, I, I really enjoy flying that M30. So if you ever get a chance to fly it, Grab it, yep. toss on the coordinated turns, and just watch <laughs> awesome. it rip. It's well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sharing your time with us today. It's uh, it's been an awesome show, and uh, yeah, uh, we appreciate you uh, you taking part in this. Well, thank you, gentlemen, and I do appreciate all that you guys do, and and the uh, the good word that you put out, and the education that you put out. It's uh, paying dividends, and uh, you're doing the industry awesome. some good.